Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things down under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we give you some insight into the Australia-China relationship. Why are we fighting and why does it matter? Hello everyone, my name is Tanya Ragusa. And I'm Vanessa Di Grazia. And welcome back to another episode of Australia Explained. We'd like to start, as always, by acknowledging that we're recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. Now, today we're looking at Australia and China, and a fair few people have actually requested this episode, not only since we started this podcast a few months ago, but obviously as of recent as well, because our relationship is a bit uh, down in the dumps at the moment, if you <laughs> want to say that. And I think a lot of people would see this stuff unfolding on the news and think, yes, okay, but why does it matter, you know, that we're fighting with China? What are the implications? So we're not only going to try and explain it, but also contextualize it for you and give you the history, of course. Yeah, so you may have caught a drift on the news as to what's going on, and we'll get into more detail later. But basically, ever since Australia led the push for an investigation into China's handling of COVID, our relationship has gotten very rocky. Yeah, and it sort of reached a high point last week when a Chinese politician tweeted a very fake image and fabricated image of an Aussie soldier with a knife to a child's throat to his Twitter account. And the caption was referencing the recent actions of Australian soldiers in Afghanistan and and the um, inquiry into war crimes. We'll include a link to the tweet for those who are curious. But um, it was a very big event and it has received a lot of attention from world leaders as well who have sort of backed Australia in this one. And we just want to emphasise that this relationship breakdown isn't just because of COVID. There's been accumulation of things a shifting world order on the cards for a few years now. The decline in power of the United States has given space for wealthy China to rise up and Australia has been struggling to straddle the middle between these two and see which side we lie on for quite a while now. Yeah, and I think this year's events have just accelerated this process a lot, so it's important that we look into it. As always, let's start from the beginning. What is Australia and China's relationship been historically? To understand our relationship, we have to understand China. And yes, we're an, we're an Australian podcast, but to understand this episode and understand the, the changing dynamics of world power for the next couple of decades, it's really important to understand what China is all about. Yeah, and China is very, very different to a country like Australia, so we'll run through it. Um, In 1949, the Chinese Communist Party gained control over the country, and communism is a word that's thrown around a lot, but as a definition, um, it means that there's no private property or finances. The government owns everything and dishes out things like food, housing, etc., equally amongst the community. I mean, you don't go to a job to earn money and buy yourself things. You go to a job in exchange for the government providing you with everything. And in practice, this has turned into dictatorships, etc. many times, but there's a definition for education's sake. (laughs) Um, Think of it as being taxed 100% of your wage, but then not having to pay for anything. So this was the system that they implemented in China, but it went pretty sour. They had a dictator named Mao Zedong who implemented a bunch of bad policies, which led to huge, huge famine um, 
in the 1960s, 45 million Chinese actually died in these policy famines, which if you compare it to 6 million deaths in the Holocaust, it's crazy that a lot of people don't learn about this huge, huge um, event. Yeah, it, it really was massive. And over time, China has started to drift away from this form of strict communism. From the late 1970s, it started introducing all kinds of reforms that allowed private business um, to, to bloom in China. And this is what's escalated into the country that we know today, this booming economic industry. Um, that idea of no private finances and no private property is clearly no more. And, you know, China is very much so a capitalist country now. Actually, in the last couple of decades, they've lifted 800 million people out of poverty. So China is actually responsible for the decline in the global poverty rate. And it was expected by a lot of world leaders that um, shifting away from those economic principles of communism and becoming wealthier would slowly turn China into a democracy like Australia, the UK or the US. But this never happened. Um, the country is still ruled by the Chinese Communist Party. It is not a democracy at all. And for around 70 years, it has been a dictatorship of sorts. This is very, very relevant um, when we're looking at how it interacts with Australia. Yeah, because we are run in completely different ways. Australia began its relations with China in 1971. It was a huge deal when Gough Whitlam um, visited China because they were like the political pariahs of the world. So not very different to the ways in which we view countries such as North Korea now. And it was actually met with a lot of backlash worldwide. We touched on this briefly in our Whitlam dismissal episode, if you want to check that out. But this actually paid off. This was a good move on Goff's behalf because it flourished into a very strong relationship and um, it was already well underway by the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, so from this, we built a really strong trade relationship. And in 2007, when the global financial crisis hit the entire world economy, Australia was able to push through relatively unscathed due to China's use of the opportunity to do a big infrastructure boom and buy up heaps of Australian resources. Um, we mentioned that in our recession episode a couple of weeks ago, if you want to go back to that one. And this definitely escalated in 2014 when Tony Abbott um, agreed on a free trade agreement between the two nations. This saw trade flourish. Uh, free trade agreements basically make it really easy for businesses in different countries to work together with really low taxes. So this really boomed um, the relationship between the two countries. And it was all going well until 2017, where it started to go a little bit south. But we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah, so just to crunch some numbers... China is our biggest trading partner by far. Our relationship with them is worth more than $155 billion. Pre-COVID, Australia received over 1 million Chinese tourists a year, which accounts for 13% of all our tourists. And of these tourists, a big category is Chinese students. They are the biggest share of our international students. And in Victoria especially, international education is our biggest export, which was, has obviously been very heavily impacted this year. And as well, 2.2% of Australian residents were born in China. So they are part of our, I guess, cultural fabric. Yeah, you can see we're obviously very extremely interconnected as nations and it's worth noting that these statistics are all about China's importance to Australia like China is our biggest trading partner but we are not their biggest trading partner and that's definitely something to note when we talk about power here mm. um, 
And it also brings up this idea that we don't have a lot of cultural power when it comes to China. So, for example, Aussies think of ourselves as aligned with the US or the UK, you know, those sorts of Western English-speaking nations. But the countries we feel cultural connections to are not necessarily the most important to our country's well-being. And a country like China that we might not take as much notice of, we don't know their politicians, their celebrities, etc., actually have a huge, huge impact on the daily lives of so many Australians. So we've crushed the stats and the timeline up until recently, but what's happening at the moment? Yeah, so before we get into our current turbulent times, we have to remember that this isn't the first time our relationship has been tested. Um, When we look back on the Tiananmen Square massacre, which happened in 1989, this was when the CCP, the Communist Party of China, they killed uh, thousands of student protesters. The number isn't uh, clearly stated anywhere, but it is believed that a few thousand were killed. And Australia condemned this very publicly, and Bob Hawke, who was the Prime Minister at the time, let all Chinese students um, seek, a, seek refuge in Australia and stay in Australia for, for safety. And it was a very public emotional response by Bob Hawke in a speech about the massacres. He was actually seen crying and tearing up and getting quite emotional that this was allowed to happen in the country. So that's why he did extend that stay to them. And then in 2007, Prime Minister John Howard met with the Dalai Lama, who is the leader of Tibet, which is a state that China refuses to formally recognise. So China bust in a bunch of protesters to Canberra to kick up a bit of a fuss about it. Always a little bit dramatic with their diplomacy, China. (laughs) Even last year, we had some big issues when Chinese company Huawei was banned from providing 5G to Australians on the basis that the Chinese Communist Party could possibly use that technology to spy on Aussie citizens. Yeah. So whilst we do recognise that our trade relationship is mutually beneficial, we are starkly different in terms of our culture, our politics, and that is sometimes very hard to ignore. Yeah, Australia is very wary of China as a dictatorial power with no democratic values. And that's not just the government, that's Australians in general. Um, But also China and the Chinese people are wary of Australia as a racist country who not all that long ago invented the white Australia policy very deliberately to keep Chinese people out. So there's a lot of mistrust between the two of us and just kind of a lack of understanding on morals and values and culture in general. Yeah, and there was a lot of dialogue a couple decades ago about, you know, Asian immigration and things like that. So it still is very tense. But now to what's happening at the moment, it is, it's a lot, isn't it? It's so much. Researching for this was a whirlwind. Everything that's happened in 2020 is just a lot. Um, We've been in this tricky position for years now where we desperately need trade with China, but the public and the politics of the day is very wary of Chinese expansion and the government wants to be seen as having a strong stance against that. So that began in 2017 when Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister at the time, expressed concern about um, Chinese influence on domestic politics and then the Hawaii thing happened a year later. Um, This has been exacerbated by a public sentiment on social media, especially against the treatment of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang and the handling of the Hong Kong democracy protests. So China's got a bit of a PR problem to Australians at the moment. 
Yeah, and that brings us to April of this year when Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton demanded an investigation into China's handling of coronavirus. And this turned into appeal, an appeal that now has now been backed by 137 countries and is currently being conducted by the World Health Organization. So it's pretty big and this has had a few consequences, the biggest one being trade. Um, China has basically affected a lot of Australian industries, most heavily the wine industry. So before this, we were previously enjoying zero tariffs importing to China, and this has now been increased to 212%. So for those who don't know, a tariff is a tax that you pay on any imports that you bring into a country. So imagine paying nothing to now paying 212 times the price of that, just as a tax. That is ridiculous insane and it's and it's a really big deal seeing as a third of all our wine is exported to china also things like barley beef lobsters timber so china is promising to ban up to six billion dollars worth of exports from australia each year and they basically warn the australian government to sort of get back in line and to quote um, reflect deeply on itself so they are threatening us with a few big bans I guess I know this is all very serious but one of the things I love about politics is just how ridiculous it is like you just say a little quote like that to another minister reflect deeply (laughs) and don't bring your wine here like (laughs) (laughs) it's like friends having an argument but anyway um And although this is a real honest threat to a lot of Australian businesses, it is worth noting, um, just to avoid panic's sake, that these industries make up less than 2% of all the value to our exports to China. So it's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money in comparison to all the rest of the money. Mm -hmm. And nothing has been mentioned about our big money maker, which is iron ore, because China absolutely depends on using it as much as we depend on selling it. And it's very unlikely that they're going to chuck some tariffs on that. Yeah, that's pretty much keeping us afloat. And these trade bans to like the wine industry and barley and beef and and whatnot, they're targeting middle-sized business owners, you know, lobster fishermen, winemakers, rather than those big sort of mining corporations. And this is an attempt to get them to lobby against the government to succumb to China's demands. Basically, they want middle-upper the middle upper class of Australia to be pro-China and angry at the Australian government for not being pro-China. But reports have shown that this actually isn't working out this way and these industry groups within Australia are actually supporting our government's approach towards these tariffs because, you know, it's just not going China's way at all. The Aussie spirit. (laughs) Yeah, and Australia has also officially signed on the World Trade Organization to help out with its relationship with China at the moment. So we'll have to see if that does anything beneficial. But yeah, it's not really going China's way. And that was the trade aspect. And now we'll get to the sneaky spies, etc. aspect. Spies. Yeah. Um, in August, the head of a Chinese English language channel named Chang Li, she's an Australian citizen, she was detained and she still is on uncertain grounds. She was kind of whisked away in the middle of the night um, sort of thing. And a couple of weeks later, two Aussie journalists were rushed out of the country for the same reason. They were about to be detained. Um which obviously caused concern um, amongst the government and just the Australian public. How can they detain Australian citizens with no reason? 
There was also um, in June when the New South Wales Labor Party was accused of being infiltrated by Chinese spies. And I remember this story and when writing this episode was very surprised to see that um, the MP in question was suspended, investigated, but then found that all the claims were found to be false. Right. And I remember this being so widely reported. Um, I don't know if you feel the same. It was on every news station. Everyone was talking about how the New South Wales Labor Party was, you know, communist, etc. But yeah, it turned out none of it was true. It was part of a previously investigated event where a Chinese billionaire had given another MP $100,000. But the claims were false and it was barely even reported. Even when I Googled it, it only popped up a couple of articles. Yeah, and, you know, obviously if we're going back to Cold War times where, you know, Russian spies and communist spies were a big thing, I think if anything it's the impact of the fear and the paranoia. So even though these claims were false, I think having that fear and that paranoia and just that suspicion would have made things a bit tense and and sometimes that can be a driving factor for a lot of things. So, I but I don't remember hearing this as heavily reported as you do. Maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but that's really interesting. Um, there is definitely evidence that both China and Australia are using spies to meddle in each other's affairs, though, but to what extent, we don't really know. And like I said, it just adds to that suspicion and mistrust between the two countries. And obviously that crea- the creation of that fake photo with the Aussie soldier has just brought this conflict onto another level. Yeah, that photo was really odd and it made me consider how deep fakes, which are like doctored images and videos that seem very realistic, will Mm. make the truth even murkier in the future because we're entering an age where we can barely rely on information and media literacy is getting more and more complex. And for me and you that are really interested in that field of thought, um, it's going to get a whole lot more (laughs) complicated. Yeah, and especially in a country like China where social media and, I guess, internet platforms are heavily regulated. So seeing a picture like that makes makes everyone think, okay, why was that published purposely on social media and do the Chinese population have that media literacy to understand it and break it down? So it's a very weird issue. Okay, we've gone through all the info. Now for that context we promised. Vanessa, what does this mean for the relationship between Australia and China and, you know, the everyday Australian moving forward? Well, there's no point making too many projections here, but there are some things that we can rather safely assume. One of them being that China will continue to grow both economically, militarily and culturally. The last is definitely the most interesting Um They're really, really trying to expand their cultural power. And they're doing this through projects such as the Belt and Road Initiative, which purposefully spends money um, in developing nations in order to make friends, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And this program's actually being expanded to all kinds of places, not just developing nations. Most recently, Victoria, um, which shows how aggressively they're looking to expand these sorts of economic and cultural friendships. Yeah, we'll include a link to an article of the scandal between Victoria and China's Belt Road Initiative in the show notes. It's a lot, it's too much to get into right now. But um, Victoria is the only state in Australia to have made this deal. So it's, it's, if you look back at our state and fed 
episode that we did a couple weeks ago, looking at how now states have a bit of power to independently seek help from other countries and, and build these relationships, which might be at odds with the rest of the country. So seeing how that eventuates will be really interesting. But I guess China is trying to change their international image of, you know, human rights abusers to now generous infrastructure friends. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. And towing the line between being trade besties um, with different ideologies is going to become harder and harder. You know, these sorts of stories with trade tariffs and officials declaring offence at each other will probably continue and at a cost to our businesses that are very reliant on Chinese customers. But the only thing that Aussies can do is what we should always be doing when worrying about foreign influence, looking inwards. And this means promoting Australian products and businesses, making sure that we are self-sufficient as a country because the bickering between the two nations matters less if we are putting in place solid policy to keep things made in Australia. Yeah, and I think especially after this year, a lot of people are looking towards Australian small businesses and Australian products, um, especially when, you know, as consumers making purchases. And we can already see um, signs of the government, you know, rolling this forward as well. As part of the federal budget, Scott Morrison did include a $1.5 billion manufacturing package to, you know, build the manufacturing industry in Australia, which is a step in the right direction and ensures that products are being made and sold in Australia. And to finish off this episode, I feel that this has to be mentioned. With any sort of discussion about the rise of China, we have to remember that it is a political conversation and not a racial one. A really worrying statistic that I saw was that more than 80% of Asian Australians have experienced racism during COVID, which is unacceptable, un-Australian and makes absolutely no sense because the lead members of the Chinese Communist Party who are committing these human rights abuses in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, they're not running around Australian cities enjoying their smash dabo. So please leave Chinese Australians alone. They have nothing to do with this. Don't generalise, just it has nothing to do with them. Okay, and now it's time for our recommendations if our listeners want to find out more. Vanessa, what have you got for me today? My recommendation is an article from China Daily, which is an English language Chinese state media channel. So it is one of those like Chinese government channels. Um, And it's about Australia needing to be more respectful towards China. And I recommended this because it's always good to look at different um, news outlets and like have for a better understanding of what Chinese people are reading and the attitudes that is coming across from that side. Um, Yeah, it's good to touch up on these websites. And also international news is really important. As I touched on earlier, we get really caught up in countries like the US and the UK, you know, to the drama that's provided by Western politics. And we turned a blind eye to what's happening in countries that matter when decisions made in countries like China and India affect Australia a whole lot more than who wins some Senate seat in a small state in the US. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll include a bunch of similar news sources in the show notes, but I really enjoyed this article. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great recommendation. My recommendation is a website put together by the Whitlam Institute at the Western Sydney University. And 
as a historian, I love this one because it's got a bunch of primary documents um, about Gough Whitlam's attempt in the 70s to build those relationships into the Asia-Pacific region. And there are images and there are videos that you can watch of Whitlam, you know, making speeches and going on diplomatic missions with, with ministers in China, which basically marked the beginning of our relationship with them. So just a bit of a historical one for you today. Tanya, Whitlam's number one groupie. <laughs> oh, it's bad. It's it's becoming a bit of an obsession now. <laughs> but that's it from us today. Thank you for listening and thank you for recommending this idea for this episode. We'd, we'd love to hear what you'd like us to cover in future episodes and let us know what you think. We're always interested to hear your thoughts. In the meantime, as always, follow us for more short, sweet and simple Aussie content on Instagram at Australia Explained Pod. All the info is in the show notes for the checkout. See you next week. Bye. Bye.